0: 1 Samuel 3, if you could open your Bibles, we're going to read the entire chapter and we're going to go through it. We've taken a break for a couple of weeks. Part of it was because we had a medical emergency, so Eric preached on John 6, and then James was preaching on a culture of serving last week. Uh, But we really want to get back into our series through 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 3. Let's read it and then we'll pray. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. So there was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun, to, had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out. And Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel and he said, here I am and ran to Eli and said, here I am for you called me. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, go, lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And the Lord came and stood, calling us at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, speak, for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I am about to punish this house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Samuel lay until morning. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, here I am. And Eli said, What was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you, and more also if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh. For the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you this afternoon. We come before your word. And it's a crazy time uh, for a lot of churches. God, we pray for your grace. We pray, God, that you would help us to be able to get what needs to be done, all of us, so that we might be able to meet again. God, we pray for your provision. And we know, God, that you are gracious. God, right now, I pray that you would speak through your word, your word which is living and active, which is sharper than any two-edged sword, a word that can change our lives. And God, even though it's through a screen that this is not ideal, not what we want exactly, God, it's still a blessing. And God, we know that you can work. So God, we pray that you would fix our eyes and focus our hearts. I pray, God, that we would submit ourselves to your word, that we would not just be hearers but doers of it, and I pray, God, that you would use First Samuel 3 powerfully in our lives and in our church. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, it was the 25th anniversary of John MacArthur's pastor at a Grace Community Church. And W.A. Chriswell, the old Southern Baptist expositor from Dallas, actually. He was at First Baptist Dallas, right down 75. Um, but he was preaching to commemorate the occasion. And Chriswell's sermon was on the integrity of Scripture. Now, he was uh, preaching on this because he and MacArthur were both all about expository preaching. They're all about the Bible. So he's preaching. He's doing his thing. He's expositing the word. But then in the middle of his sermon, he did something surprising. He goes, you know, some people, they don't really care much for the Bible. And then he picked up his Bible and he said they would just as soon throw it away. And he flicked his wrist and he threw it some 15 feet down the center aisle in between the pews. And you could hear people audibly gasp. They were shocked that this guy, this preacher, would throw the Bible. Then Criswell, he walked down to where his Bible was. He picked it up. He dusted it off. He held it to his heart. And then he got right back in the pulpit and finished his sermon about the greatness of the Word of God. Now, let me ask you a question. Okay, Think about this. It might be an obvious question, but it's important for you and I to consider. What's wrong? What's actually wrong with throwing your Bible? What's actually bad about it? Why would that shock most of us? Why do we think about that in a negative light? I mean, sure, you might think it's bad to throw any book, right? Because it will damage the book. It's a waste of money. But if Chriswell threw a random book, I think people, People would be more puzzled by it, right? That was weird. Why did he throw that random book than bothered? So maybe it has to do with it being a religious text. But the thing is, I could see someone, you know, giving a sermon about how other religious texts are are wrong or something and, and throwing one of them away. And Christians, at least, wouldn't react in the same way. They wouldn't be as horrified. See, the reason why it's shocking that a Christian preacher would throw the Bible is that Christians believe That God inspired this book. That in the Bible, we have the very words of God. To throw the Bible is therefore to disrespect the Bible. And to disrespect the Bible is therefore to disrespect the God who wrote the Bible. God himself. So why would Criswell, this guy who was handpicked to preach on the special occasion at John MacArthur's church, and I mean it's God's church, you know what I'm getting at. It's not MacArthur's church, but you know what I mean. Why did Criswell, this guy who seemingly had a high view of the Bible, why did he throw the Bible? Didn't he know you're not supposed to throw it? Didn't he know you can't just disrespect the book in that way? The truth is, of course he did, and that was the point. See, okay, 1 Samuel chapter 3, okay, what does this have to do with our text? 1 Samuel chapter 3 is basically Samuel's origin story as a prophet, right? Kind of like a superhero, kind of like Spider-Man. Okay, just kidding. I'm not going to bring up Spider-Man again. Uh, some of you guys talked to me about it afterward, um, but don't worry. I'm not going to bring up Spider-Man for at least a couple more months or something. Um, but this chapter is where God, for real, he, he calls Samuel to be a prophet, Samuel, the child, becomes Samuel, the great prophet of Israel, the greatest prophet, in fact, in Israel since Moses. And really, if you look at the timeline of redemptive history, he's the greatest prophet in Israel for a long time. Okay, no one for a long time is at the the same level as Samuel because Samuel is the guy who's going to change everything. He's the one who's going to be used by God to establish the kingdom. So here's the question. Why Samuel? What is it about Samuel? What does God see in Samuel? Sure, the what of this chapter is Samuel's calling, but what about the why? Why this kid? And as we'll see in the text, it has very little to do with Samuel's abilities, his family, his giftedness. We don't even know that much about what Samuel was like and his personality. It has everything to do with Samuel's relationship with the Word of God. See, Samuel is one of the best examples in human history of someone who would just as soon not throw it away and we got to get into it to really understand what that means. So let's get into it. We'll break this text down under three headings, like we usually do. First, the condition, then the call, and then the change. Okay. First, the condition. The condition of Israel. This is the context of this entire narrative. Okay. Verse 1. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. Okay, this verse sets up the whole chapter by linking the people we've come to know, Samuel and Eli, with the condition of Israel at this point in time. We can't separate Samuel's calling from Israel's condition, the context. We can't separate the story from the situation. See, Samuel is the person that Israel needs at this time Remember, we're still technically in the days of the judges. When judges ruled, there was no king. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So it's a bad time spiritually. And we've seen in the past couple of chapters that the priests are corrupt. So what is it about Samuel that makes him the right person? Well, what does it say here at the end of verse one? We're told something more. The word of God was rare in those days. Now, what does rare mean? If you think about it, what does rare actually mean? It's... Not another kind of a, it's another kind of obvious question. Rare is not a rare word, right? It's not an uncommon word. And there you go. Rare means uncommon, but think about what rare implies. Okay. Think about what it actually implies about something. When you say that it's rare, if you Google the word rare, the dictionary definition says this, it says not found in large numbers and, and this is the implication and consequently of interest or value. See, the thing about rare things is that there aren't a lot of them, therefore they are really valuable in the world. And this implication is in the Hebrew word for rare here in verse one, two. The Hebrew word is yakar, and it's a word that is often also translated as precious or valuable. So in the days of 1 Samuel 3, what it's telling us is that the word of God was a precious commodity. It was like gold or diamonds. It was rare like that. You know, sometimes I think we get this impression when we study the Bible or read through the Bible just in big chunks that God was always speaking to people in the Old Testament. Back in the day, there were always these miracles. God was just sending uh, signs and prophets and doing wonders and, and doing miracles. Every Sunday at 1.30, you could come see the supernatural. That's just what it was like in Bible days. But when you look at the Bible's actual timeline, when you look at how much time is in between these events, you see that this clearly wasn't the case. The people of Israel, for example, were slaves in Egypt for 400 years before a single plague happened in Egypt. And during Samuel's day, it says says that God's speaking was especially rare. And this sets us up for what's going to happen next. See, okay, if the word is rare, yakar, Okay, people don't hear from God a lot. If this was special, then you would expect people to what? What would be your expectation? You'd expect people to treasure it, devalue it. Now, okay, before we get into what happens next, think about this. Okay, consider this for yourself. What do you think happens when the rare becomes common? Think about the opposite of rare. What would happen to the value of money, let's say, theoretically, if people were able to print out as much money as they wanted? See, if we look at our situation and compare it with 1 Samuel 3.1, our situation couldn't be more different. We live in a time and place where most of us own multiple copies of the Bible. We can access all these different translations and resources online anytime that we want. Theoretically, this is a great thing. Right, Our spiritual forefathers in the faith, some of them gave their lives so that we, just regular people, could read the Bible in our own language. But even though this is theoretically theoretically great, practically in real life, in your life, what have been the results? I mean, has it been great that you could just read the Bible, that you have five copies of the Bible on your shelf? How would you say that abundance... How would you say that abundance, your abundance, has affected your estimation of the value of the word of God? I mean, would you say that the Bible is precious to you? Now, you might be thinking, okay, fine. Okay, you got me. That's convicting. But if I could ask, it seems like verse 1 is talking about something else, Pastor. Jesse, you're trying to talk about the Bible here, but it says in verse 1 that there was no frequent vision. So really, if you look at this text, it's kind of a stretch. You're not talking about scripture. This is talking about something else. No offense to the Bible, but it's talking about receiving direct personal revelation from God, images and dreams. I mean, if God appeared to me personally in a burning bush and he spoke to me with an audible voice and told me about my situation and what his will was for my life, of course I'd listen. Of course, I'd value it as something precious, as one of the greatest experiences of my life. Well, here's the thing, okay? Now, it's true that vision means vision, something you see. But if you study the Hebrew word hazan for vision, you see that while prophets were given visions, while people were given visions, they were always supposed to communicate these visions with words. That's how it always worked. Even the prophets who were given these object lessons to live out, like Hosea, Mary, Gomer, he was supposed to write it down or at least speak it out. It was always intended that communication would happen. Words were the goal. Communication was the goal. So let's not get it confused here. The value of the word of God is not in how crazy the experience was in receiving it. The value of the word of God is in the fact that it is God communicating to us. Okay, the God of the universe who created everything, he has condescended himself to speak to us in a way that we can receive and understand. The value is in that God is the source, that God is valuable. Now, this is the problem. You think that people in those days would have valued the word more than most because it was so rare? I mean, they don't have the problem of abundance like we do. But what has 1 Samuel already showed us? What happened just last chapter? I know it's been a little while. I've been gone But if you look at your text, if you look at chapter two and you just remember a little bit about the last sermon in Samuel, a man of God showed up at Eli's door and told him a message from God. Do you remember that? Directly, a once in a lifetime opportunity where this man of God spoke to Eli about his situation. It was a personal word. But how does Eli respond? Okay, we aren't told if he said anything, okay, so we don't want to make an argument from silence, but if you read through the text and you read ahead a little bit, it quickly becomes apparent. Eli doesn't respond, as in his life doesn't change at all. He makes no changes. Okay, he doesn't act in accordance with what has been revealed. When people win the lottery, whether for better or for worse, the effects are always apparent. Okay, their life changes. Their lifestyle changes. Eli's life doesn't change at all. So do you see what's going on here? Just like how beauty is in the eye of the beholder, ultimately value is to Eli, does not view it as a special event, at least not in his life. Even if the word was rare, it doesn't mean that people viewed it as precious. You know, if you were in Washington, D.C., taking the Metro on January 12th, 2007, You might have seen this guy in a baseball hat playing a violin at the station, an open violin case next to him. And in the time that he was playing on that one day, he made $32.17. Not a lot. In fact, 20 of those dollars came from one person, the only person out of hundreds who recognized him. See, the rando guy playing violin at the Metro was actually Joshua Bell, who's one of the greatest violinists of all time. And I don't actually know anything about violinists, but I know this story because it was a test. Would people recognize the greatest violinist if they heard him without knowing? Clearly not. In fact, just a couple of days before this, this is what makes it so crazy in DC, the same city, people had paid hundreds of dollars in a packed-out auditorium to hear this guy play the exact same pieces. But when he went outside and he played and he didn't advertise who he was, he only made $32.17. They said over a 1,000 people passed by without so much as stopping. They didn't recognize the value of hearing Joshua Bell. Now, did this mean he somehow was less talented? Did this mean his playing was less beautiful, that he lost something? No. But the fact of the matter is some people don't know gold even when they see it. It's not the gold's fault. And this leads to the second point. Okay, first, we're talking about valuing the word. We have to understand that the condition of Israel was such that not only was the word of God rare, it was also not valued by most, not even by the religious leaders. So second, what kind of leader is God going to put in place? And this is the second point, the call. What is God looking for when he calls a new leader? And the call of Samuel shows us what God cares about, okay? Now, if there's one incident from Samuel's life, okay, if there's one story that you know from your Bible about Samuel, it's this one. It's a favorite in children's Bibles. I remember when I was a kid, I heard this story maybe because he was a kid and there's some, like, camaraderie there. I don't know. But it says in verse 1, if you look, that Samuel was still a boy, Okay, now just for context, the word for boy here in Hebrew implies an older kid. Okay, so it's not the word for like really young kid. Like when Samuel first got dropped off by Hannah and Elkanah, he was like three, four years old. He was like a toddler or whatever, uh kindergartner. But now he's like, you know, older. He's not quite an adult yet. And remember, you become an adult when you turn like 13 or whatever. So he's probably like 10, 11, 12, best guess. He's a little bit older, but he's still a kid. Verse 2. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. Okay, so the story starting to unfold. You see Eli, you see Samuel. Eli, his eyesight is starting to go bad due to his age. And this is literal, okay? But there's something symbolic, too, about this. And the text is drawing our attention to it. The spiritual leader of Israel is going blind increasingly. I mean, it's the perfect picture for what's going on with Israel's leadership. And you'll see as time goes on that he gets blinder and blinder. He doesn't see right. But then verse 3, the lamp of God had not yet gone out. Now, every night a lamp would be lit in the tabernacle, okay, to keep the light on all the time. There would always be light. So we know it's probably early, early morning, okay, before the lamp goes out, before the sun rises. But picture the scene in your mind, okay? It's dark, okay? The high priest who is supposed to, to be the person who knows God the best is going blind. He can barely see, but there's still a little bit of light. First Samuel isn't just information. See, it's literature, it's art. The narrative uses the details to set us up, to put the right picture in our mind that even though the light in Israel is dim, even though the people are supposed to leave the way, are blind, the light isn't out yet. And where is the light? The light is where Samuel is, the boy Samuel. Samuel is sleeping in the tabernacle. He lives here just another night. But then into the darkness, a voice calls out his name, Samuel. And Samuel jumps up. Eli must need something. So he runs over to Eli's room. Here I am. I'm here. You call me. Now, Eli, who didn't call, was probably sound asleep. He wakes up startled. He says, what? No, I didn't say anything. Go back to bed. You're probably hearing stuff. Samuel lies down. Okay, that was weird. He starts drifting off again, and then the voice, clear as daylight, calls to him again, Samuel. Okay, so he's like, okay, now Eli's calling me, because I woke him up. So he goes, verse 6, here I am, for you called me. Surely it was Eli. But Eli again goes, I didn't call. I didn't say anything. Go back to bed. Now, Does God's voice sound like Eli's voice or something? Are they like people who could uh, do like some type of um, trick on you? Come on. Look at verse 7. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. It's not so much that God's voice sounds like Eli's. It's that he had no category for hearing the voice of God. I mean, would you recognize the voice of God? If someone called out your name in the middle of the night, would you assume, oh, it must be God. He's calling me to be a prophet. In his day, in Samuel's day, God didn't speak to people. So why would Samuel assume it was God calling his name? And sure, Samuel has been serving the Lord. He's been in his presence. But in terms of really knowing him, the text is clear. He doesn't yet. And it's interesting because what was it about the bad sons of Eli? Eli? that set them apart. It was their sin, of course, their blasphemy, but the text said that they didn't know God. Samuel didn't know God either yet. See, the thing is, no one is born automatically knowing God. I think sometimes you want to split things up as if, you know, Samuel was just a hero, okay? There was something about him that was categorically spiritually different than the sons of Eli, No one is born automatically knowing God. John the Baptist is the exception that proves the rule. But every son of Adam, every daughter of Eve is born with a sin nature. And because of our sin, there's a separation between us and God. We are born estranged from him. We don't come into this world with a reconciled relationship. Even if we're born to parents that have it, even if we start attending church from the womb, there has to be a point when we come to know God, when we respond to his call. Eric talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Some people will show up to heaven's gate and they will think that they should be in heaven. And They'll say, God, remember all those things I did? I served you. I got into theology. I read a few books. I, I sang on the worship team. I gave my tithes and offerings. And, and then God, and, and nothing against those things, but God will say to them, wait, who are you? All right, depart from me. I never knew you. See, we have to know God. And for us, Same as it was with Samuel in this text. In a similar way, it comes down to the word. When God speaks, how do we respond? Because the external call of God always comes through his word. The make or break moment is always when we heard the word, how did we react to it? For us, it's the gospel. To be a Christian means repentance and belief in the gospel message. When you heard that you were a sinner, that God is holy, that the only way to be saved is through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, shed on the cross. How did you respond to that? It's about how we respond to what God says. Samuel did not yet know the Lord, but the key key word here is yet. Yet. Because God speaks to him a third time, verse 8. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time, and he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore, Eli said to Samuel, Go, lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. Now, we'll come back to this, okay, but Eli Not Samuel gets what's going on. Eli going blind, though he is, perceives that it's God. And he tells Samuel exactly what to do. And the Lord, verse 10, came and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, speak for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. It's kind of a funny translation in the ESV. It's more like it'll make people's ears buzz, you know. Verse 12, on that day, I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I will declare to him that I'm about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. It's an intense word. But did you notice that the message that God has for Samuel has nothing to do with Samuel? It's all about Eli. It's all about Eli's household. And also, did you notice this isn't exactly new information? This is just a summary of what God said last chapter through the anonymous man of God. See, the thing is, this message that God has for Samuel is a test. God wants to see how Samuel is going to respond. What will Samuel do with his word? See, what does verse 13 say again? And I declare to him. Did you catch that? I declare to Eli, what is God saying? I'm telling you this, Samuel, so that you will tell Eli. Now, of course, God is sovereign. He knows what Samuel's going to do. But this is the make or break moment. The test is will Samuel honor God's word? Will he be faithful to it? Will he tell Eli what God wants Eli to know? See, I mean, you might have seen this, but many preachers have lost their nerve under pressure when it comes to saying the hard things. You've probably seen certain famous preachers on TV or maybe a video clip, like speaking in public at an event or something where they were asked questions like, is Jesus the only way to heaven, right? Are you saying that if I don't believe in Jesus, I'm going to hell? And in that moment, even though the preacher believes those things, he just can't say it. They just wouldn't say it. They wouldn't say, yes, Jesus is not just a way, but he is the way, the truth, the life. And it's because I think if we're just being uh, real here, it's a hard thing to say when the spotlight is on you because you're going to get a lot of hate for it. And maybe if we're being charitable, it's because you don't want to make that person feel bad. I mean, they're saying, are you saying that my grandma is going to hell, even though she didn't really do anything bad? And the truth is, if she's a sinner, then she has done bad things. And if she didn't believe in Jesus, she is. And that's a hard thing to say. I wouldn't want to say it to someone about their grandma. I wouldn't want to. So for many reasons, many people have failed the test when the lights were bright upon them. God speaks to Samuel directly. Such a blessing, right? He heard the voice of God. Such a privilege. And it is a privilege. Okay, I'm not saying it's not. But what God says to Samuel, this kid, is one of the hardest possible things that he could have said to Samuel, this kid. Because Eli is the one who's taken care of him his entire life. I mean, since he was a little, little kid. Eli's the one who's watched over him. I mean, there's a close relationship here. You can tell in the way that Eli doesn't get mad when Samuel wakes him up. He calls him my son. I mean, Eli's trying to do better. Eli's not the worst person in the Bible. Go tell your adopted father that judgment is coming for him and his house. What does verse 15 say? It says that Samuel is afraid. And it's not hard to think of many reasons why he might be afraid. One, I mean, maybe Eli would get mad, and Eli doesn't seem like the super confrontational type. He doesn't confront his own sons, um, but maybe he'll—maybe Samuel's afraid he might take out his anger on the messenger. Maybe Samuel's worried, okay, that you know he's technically kind of part of Eli's house, and he's trying to think about what this will do on me, uh, or maybe he—he he just doesn't want Eli to suffer. At the guy who's taking care of him uh, all this time. He doesn't want to tell Eli that his family is going to be punished and that their iniquity will never be forgiven, that all of Israel is going to know. This is the hardest possible message, or one of, that God could have given Samuel. Verse 16, but Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. It kind of reverses here. Now Eli is calling, and Samuel says, here I am. And Eli said, what was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. Okay, he could have softened the blow here. Okay, Eli's not going to know. Eli is pretty forceful, sure. But he could have just said, you know, he just said that you got to clean up your act or something. But verse 18, Samuel told him what? Everything everything and hid nothing from him. Samuel passes the test. See, the thing is, the Bible says hard things. Okay, it says a lot of difficult things. We all struggle in different ways. We all live in different situations. But the truth is, the Bible has difficult truths in it for everybody. Maybe you were really wronged in it, really wronged in your life in some way. And then you read in the Bible that it says, forgive or you will not be forgiven. That is hard. Maybe you have a really annoying life, and then you read in the Bible, don't grumble or complain about anything. That's hard for you day to day. Maybe you've suffered super bad, and then you read that God is sovereign even over your suffering. The Bible has difficult sayings. The test is do we receive what God says as His Word? Do we honor it? Do we accept it? Are we faithful to it, even if it's hard? even if it hurts. I have a friend, he went to Master Seminary where I also went a few years before me. Um but he's actually um he's actually a professor now. Um but uh he's really involved in the church. He preaches quite a bit. Uh and one time years ago he was preaching at this college conference. Uh and I wasn't there. Uh, I heard it heard about it later. Um but he I guess he felt like um the students were kind of hard-hearted or they didn't really care to hear the Bible. Um, So he went to the store, uh, I think during the conference, and he bought like uh, the cheapest Bible he could find. Um, And then he went up there and then he said, look, um, if you don't want to believe that God created everything, right? If you don't want to believe that God created you and therefore owns your life, might as well rip out Genesis. And he ripped Genesis out of the Bible right in front of them. And people were Shocked. I mean, if you thought people gasped when Chris walked threw the Bible, people were dying. Then he said, if you don't uh, think that anyone should be able to tell you anything or, or what to do, not even God, uh, then rip out the law. Right, who cares about the law? He ripped out Exodus, 10 commandments. He ripped out Leviticus and he ended up ripping out the entire Bible and the pages were just all over the ground. Now I'm not saying that you should rip out your Bible. I know none of you have ever done this at home. I hope, but have you done this in your heart? I mean, that's what my friend was getting at. Have you done this in your heart? I mean, if you act like it doesn't even belong in here, if it doesn't matter, then who cares if the pages are still bound or not? I mean, have you read a text and just said, nope, not going to do that today? And the text says, don't do this or do this. Love your neighbor. You're like, I don't want to love that guy. Because if that's the case, then what is the real difference? In fact, honestly, if God looks at the heart and we look at the outside appearance, then what we do in our hearts is worse. And this leads to the third point, the third point, the change. The change which helps us to understand the heart of God. See, First Samuel is a change in the Bible. A lot changes. Okay, Samuel shows up. He is the prophet after Moses. He's the one who establishes the kingdom. I mean, this is the beginning of the kingdom. But what is at the heart of all of this? Look at verse 18 again. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. Eli said, it's the Lord. It's God. I mean, let him do what seems good to him. Now, here's a question. Okay. Just for your understanding. Is how Eli responded good? What do you think? I mean, is, th- is this a good response? The text doesn't explicitly say uh, if it was good or bad, and depending on the presuppositions that we bring to the text, we might hear it differently. Like for me, on my first read, I was like, oh, pretty good, right? Eli seems to be uh, more humble than I would have expected. I mean, God just said that he's going to judge his household forever, that there is going to be no atonement that will be enough. And Eli says, well, you know, God is God, okay? I'll just submit to it. I mean, if you think about Eli in comparison to like Jonah, okay, this is way better. When God told Jonah to to do something he didn't want to, that he didn't want to do, he ran away. He literally went in the other direction. But the thing is, does responding better than like Jonah, does that really mean much? See, here's something interesting. In a time when the word of God was rare, Eli received not one, but two direct messages From God. Okay, maybe God didn't speak audibly to him, but these messages were personal to him from prophets. But you read chapter four, okay, and he says, It's because of your sons, it's because of their blasphemy, it's because of their iniquity, you honor them above me. But then you read chapter four, and guess who's still in charge of Israel's life? Guess who's bringing out the ark of God? Guess who's standing at the forefront? It's your boys, Hophni and Phinehas. Nothing changed. Now, you might say, okay, well, God didn't say it could change. God didn't say repent and you'll be able to save your family. Well, I want to show you something. I brought up Jonah. I want to show you something in Jonah 3. If you could just turn there. It's toward the end of the Old Testament, Jonah 3. Jonah's right before Micah. I don't know if that helps at all. Right after Obadiah, Jonah chapter 3. If there's one minor prophet that everyone knows, it's Jonah. See, Eli, okay, his response is leagues better than Jonah's response. Jonah is a very low bar. But to see the kind of response that God wants, we look past Jonah. We should look past Jonah to the people that he was preaching to, the Ninevites. Pay attention to the message and then pay attention to the response. And we'll see where Eli went wrong. Jonah 3, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it that I tell you, the message that I tell you, excuse me. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey and he called out yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's it. That's the message. 40 days and Nineveh's done. Verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh. And he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. And let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. And pay attention to this. He says, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, pay attention how they turned from their evil way. God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. You can go back to 1 Samuel 3. God never said, Don't repent. God never said, don't do anything because there's no point. God spoke his judgment out on Nineveh. The Ninevites repented and then God relented. But even if God didn't relent and the Ninevites had no indication that he would, they still should have repented. This is right. That who knows is everything. Why? Because you don't repent just so that God would relent. You repent because it's the right thing to do when you're confronted with sin. Do You see what I'm saying? If you only repent because you think it'll help you get out of trouble, then you're not sorry for what you did. You're sorry that you got caught. See, Eli, if he truly knew in his heart that he had wronged God, if he believed the word just like the Ninevites did, if he truly took in what God told him, hey, this is blasphemy, hey, my sons do dishonor God, then even if he knew it was too late, even if he knew that his house would have the priesthood stripped away, he still should have repented because that was the right response. See, the thing is, sometimes we think agreement with the word is enough, but in Eli's life, we see that it's not enough. Again, I said, Eli is not the worst person in the Bible. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised at the end of the day. I'm not saying he is, but I wouldn't be surprised if Eli is in heaven. I mean, he lost the priesthood. He dropped the ball. But I mean, there are certain good things about his life. There are some clues that he has somewhat of a heart that wants to follow God a little bit. But what we see in Eli is that agreement, even submission to the word is not enough. It's good. Okay, it's good. But you can agree with every word in here and still not live by it. And that seems to be where Eli was. And again, he might not be in heaven because it is a bad, bad place to be. And, you know, in reading this text, and I've had to think about this text for longer than I usually do. I was supposed to preach this like three weeks ago. Um, but in thinking about it for weeks, I realize that I've been in this place a lot more than I should because here's the truth. Okay. I don't, I don't think that I've ever preached a a sermon that I disagree with. Okay. At this point, at least in the past five years, I think I agree with every single word that I've said. I may maybe I misspoke or made a mistake here or there, Um, but I've never knowingly preached something that I outright would just didn't agree with in my head that I thought was wrong. But as I was going through 1 Samuel 3 and just turning over this text and the implications in my mind, I realized that if I look back on all of the sermons that I preached, there are a lot of things that I said that I believe, and yet they don't characterize my life. Not long-term. For example, I preached on prayer, and that week, uh, one of the weeks, at least, that I preached on it, I, I was really convicted to pray uh, that week. Okay, So I was like, okay, i got to make sure that I'm really praying and I think I did pray pretty fervently that week because I was convicted by it and I didn't want to be a hypocrite, of course. Um, and there are weeks where I, it's not like I never pray, but when I look back over like the, long, the, the long haul of, of everything, I realize that there are many weeks where I would say that I have been more characterized by prayerlessness than prayerfulness. Sometimes it's, I just worked more and prayed less because I was kind of get sucked into the bad habit of, of trying to do more on my own. Sometimes I was just lazy, You know, and I just didn't pray for whatever reason. But I realized that I said words like prayer is so valuable. You got to do it. Nothing is accomplished without prayer. And yet on the flip side, was I someone who lived like that was true? See, this is the danger for the preacher. This is the danger really for any Christian who values the word theologically and theoretically. See, we get tricked into thinking that we revere the word, that we have a high view of the word because we would never throw it physically because we would never rip out a page, because we like talking about it, because we try to understand it, because we try to make sure we have sound doctrine, because we talk about how we have a high view. But if we don't respond to it in faith, repentance, and obedience, if it doesn't get into our bloodstream, as it were, is that really reverence? I mean, it's kind of like, do you really revere, bro? Eli doesn't respond rightly, but Samuel does. And that's the change. Verse 19, and Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. There's so many people now who claim to speak for God and their words are always falling to the ground. They don't come true. Everything Samuel said came true, meaning he spoke faithfully. Everything that he said was what God wanted him to say. He did his job. And we're going to see that his job gets a lot harder when he starts having to deal with King Saul. We'll get there. But this is the change in Israel. This is the person that God wanted to use. This is how the administration of Eli and the administration of Samuel differ. It's not just that one is a priest and one is a prophet. It's that their fundamental heart attitude when it comes to the word is different. It's night and day. And this is what God has been looking for. Because one of my favorite passages, Isaiah 66 verses 1 and 2. At the very end of Isaiah, God speaks through his prophet. And he says, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? See, God has made everything. Heaven itself for all its glory is just God's chair. Okay, earth, the entire planet is where God props up his feet. Okay, God is way bigger than these things. They're not too big for him. The tides of human history don't knock God off of his feet. They don't mess up his balance. He's in complete control. He can raise up an empire and make it fall. He can do whatever he wants. I think sometimes we have too small a view of God and we feel, you know, we don't have time to worry about things like obedience. We don't have time to worry about things like not complaining or forgiving this person. I mean, think about the world. Think about world events. Think about the weather. Think about uh, politics. Think about nations. Think about America. All these things that seem so big and more important. And those things are important. What God is saying in Isaiah 66 applies to every time and every place. God is bigger than these things. He could change the world in an instant. He could raise us up or make us fall in a second. So does this mean that God is inaccessible? That God is so far that nothing matters? This is what it says in verse 2. All these things my hand has made. So all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But... But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. See, God doesn't have to use anybody. He doesn't have to. He doesn't need Samuel. But the person God wants to use fits a certain description. He might not be the strongest, the smartest, the most gifted. We don't know if Samuel was a good speaker. We don't know if he was charismatic. We don't know if he was gifted. You might not be any of those things. You might be a nobody. But God says that the one to whom he looks, the one upon whom he fixes his gaze, is the one who is humble, contrite in spirit, and trembles at his word. What does God see in Samuel? He sees someone who honors what he says. What does God see in you? What does God see in us? First Samuel ends with this. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. Dan in the north, Beersheba in the south. You got to understand that the judges had a lot of trouble unifying Israel, except for in extreme circumstances. But Samuel is used by God to unify the nation under the word of God. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. God reveals himself by his word. It all comes down to his word. This is how God wants us to know him. The change in Israel isn't so much that there's now a prophet to speak God's word, though that is huge. The change is that now there's a person who hears it and listens to it and abides by it and treasures it and receives it and lives according to it. And that could be us too. And we'll close with this. You remember I talked about Criswell picking up the Bible and going back to preaching and the service ended. And Criswell and MacArthur, they actually went out to lunch. And I wasn't there at the service. This was like 20-something years ago. Um, But he was talking about it. I heard John MacArthur talking about it. And he said that at lunch, he, he decided to ask Dr. Criswell why he did that, right? He said, you know, Dr. Criswell... Uh, that was very powerful, right? That was very moving, but, um, but you threw your Bible, right? Like, what's wrong with you? Um, that's crazy. Like, I, how could you do that? And Dr. Chriswell just said, oh, John, don't worry about it. That was my throwing Bible. Okay, so he had brought like a different Bible. That wasn't his real Bible. And it's a funny story, and MacArthur laughs when he tells it, but it's telling. Chriswell's point was it's not the binding. It's not the paper. It's not the ink that's valuable. If we focus on those things, I mean, it's not like those things don't matter, but that's the outward appearance. But what God is looking at is the inside. It's not the physical book that's valuable. It's the content. So if you gasp at someone throwing the book, but you also go and leave that sermon without responding to it, who really cares for the word? That's the point. Man looks at what's outside. God looks at the heart. So we'll close, we'll close with this. I want to show you something. I want to zoom out. And we'll end with this. According to one scholar I read, uh, this all took place maybe 30-something years after the story of Samson. You remember Samson? He was one of the judges. He was super strong. He had long hair. Samson was uh, a leader in Israel who had a distinct look, and we love telling the story because it's kind of superhero-like. The reason why he never cut his hair is because he had been dedicated to the Lord as a Nazarite from birth. And the Nazarite vow. As you might know, it's a special vow. Okay, talked about in number six. The person who makes it usually does it voluntarily for a time, but Samson did it for his entire life. And what it meant was no alcohol, nothing from the vine, not even grape juice. Uh, It meant no going near a dead body. And it meant no cutting your hair as long as you kept the vow. So in Samson's case, it was supposed to be his entire life. He had the super long hair. Now, Samson was a special guy. Okay, he was a miracle baby, right, born to a barren mother. He was dedicated to be a Nazarite for, for life in the womb. His very existence testified to the sovereign plan of God, that God was going to do something in the world through him. And you know the story. Samson, even though he was greatly gifted with strength, even though he did many awesome things for God, he also struggled greatly with his vices. He struggled to live for God. Maybe struggle is an overstatement or understatement. He didn't honor his vow. And at the end of his life, he ended up paying the price, his eyes, his dignity. In fact, he actually died. Uh, He killed himself by pushing down these pillars to kill these Philistines. Now, did you know that Samuel was also a Nazarite? Okay, it's there, right, in chapter one. We don't often have a picture of Samuel in our minds. We think of Samson as being this guy with this long hair. Guess what? The distinctive feature of Samuel's life is that he too had long hair that he could never cut his entire life. In fact, there are many parallels. A miracle baby born to a barren mother, dedicated to be a Nazarite from the womb. But the key difference was, whereas Samson's strength was physical, Samuel's strength was in his faithfulness and fidelity, and honor when it came to the word of God. And we'll see soon that where Samson failed, in kicking out the Philistines once and for all from their land, Samuel will actually succeed. And God will use him, the prophet, not the strong man, to get the Philistines out. See, physical strengths, gifts, they're not bad. God can use them, but what God is really looking for is something else entirely. So here's the question Do you tremble at God's word? Do you tremble at God? Are you humble and are you contrite? And if you're not, will you? Will you repent today in response to 1 Samuel chapter 3? Will you tremble at what God says? Will we stop as a church honoring other things above God's word? Because if we do, there's no telling what God can do through us, weak and small and insignificant as we are for his glory. Let's pray together. God, it's your word. It's your name. God, you are the one who deserves all the glory and all the praise. God, so we look to you. God, it's not about me. It's not about Zoe Church. It's about what you have said. So, God, I pray that you would help us to honor your word. I pray in the little things and the big things. I pray, God, that we would change by the power of your Spirit, God, that you would change our hearts, that we might respond in obedience to what the Word says. I pray, God, that we would take every single word uh, uh, as so important, God, as something that we need to hear. God, we ask that you would do this in our church and in our lives. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.